Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm Jordan Valerie, Editor-in-Chief of Millennial Politics, and today I'm joined by Keith Powers, the Democratic candidate for New York City Council's District 4. Thank you so much for coming, Keith. Thank you for having me. Very excited. So can you start by just telling us a bit about your background? Sure. I grew up in the district that I'm running in. Uh, I'm running in the 4th Council District, which is the east side of Manhattan and just a small part of the west side as well. It covers uh, 14th Street to 98th Street, for those who actually live in New York. Um, but really, you would know it because it encompasses a lot of the sort of symbolic parts of New York City, which includes the Empire State Building, United Nations, Museum Isle, Grand Central, just a, a piece of Times Square, uh, many other big parts of New York City and Manhattan that many people are familiar with. So it's an interesting district to be representing because of all those sort of unique challenges. But I got my, I actually uh, grew up in a neighborhood called Stuyvesant Town in Peter Cooper Village, which is a pretty solidly middle class, uh, rent stabilized, rent regulated neighborhood um, that was built after World War II and uh, have a third generation resident of the neighborhood and have been working in politics since I was in, in and outside of college, whether it's been campaigns, uh, I've worked at done government affairs, I've worked, I've been the chief of staff to an assembly member, I worked for a state senator in the neighborhood. Uh, I've also been pretty active in the community. I'm a Democratic district leader. I'm on the community board, uh, which is a local sort of decision-making body, and a, a number of other a number of other things. So I uh, I've been I've been active and involved for probably about the last 12 years in this neighborhood, in my neighborhood, and then um, active in a number of other ways, trying to help get a good Democratic elect, uh, candidates elected, helping progressives get elected. And obviously also trying to help young people get elected. I was the vice president of Manhattan Young Democrats. And so I've been doing a lot, I think, in the last 12 years. And now, obviously, running for city council to do the, my sort of next big, you know, to do something more than what I've been doing in the, in the short term. So is your previous political experience what made you want to run for office now? It certainly contributed to the idea that I brought something of experience to the race and that I was familiar with a number of the core issues that I think are happening or will be happening in this district and in the city you know, in the next coming years. I think what really motivated me to get involved in politics from the, you know, from the, from the outset when I was in college and high school was a feeling that like about on issues like human rights and social justice issues that I was uh, interested and passionate about that got me to look at local politics, look at politics, and then local politics as a way that you can do work on issues in your backyard, so that your everyday, your your everyday experiences, um, you're able to shape what ha- what happens in your neighborhood, what happens in your city, what happens in your state. I, I think a lot of people have a a uh, belief that some of these institutions don't work, but I, I believe they do, and I think that um, I decided to run based on wanting to be more involved in my community and my city and the decisions being made, the feeling like this city and this state and this country right now are, you know, sort of an interesting moment and that, um, you know, young people should definitely be getting involved and that we have a unique thing to bring to this. But um, but to answer your question a little more directly, I, yeah, I think that having been involved in my in politics and in my community in the last, you know, decade or so made me feel confident that I could do this job and do it well. And so that was sort of the thing that made me lean into running and then eventually decide to actually do it. So what's kind of the moment where you knew you wanted to run for office? (laughs) That's a good question. I think that for me and probably a lot of young people, uh, it's, it's always sort of something that is in 
the back of your mind if you are if you care about issues if you have a particular set of issues or uh, set of policies or, or your neighborhood your community I think you always kind of think about it and what would I do if I got there and what would it be like to run for office and I think that the challenge is really getting yourself from the sort of concept to the, the actual reality of it I think that it was it was the idea when the seat was opening up because the, the, the council member was term limited I started to think about who would be running for the seat and I thought, A, I wanted somebody from my particular neighborhood, which has a lot of sort of ongoing challenges. Um, but then also I just thought, like, and this sounds a little corny, I guess, but I, I really thought about what are you going to look back on your life and say, did I take the opportunities that were given to me to do more for the world that I live in? And I, I decided the answer was I wanted this was an, an open opportunity and available um, moment where I could do more than I was doing at the, at the moment. And so it was, it was before the presidential election that I decided to run based on that notion that I didn't really have see somebody that I thought brought sort of real neighborhood, real neighborhood roots and I knew ideas to the, to the city council from this district. But, the, but then obviously after the, the, the election in 2016, me, like, like others, I felt more empowered to be doing more and to run for office. So I started before that on the concept that I wanted to I, thought, I saw an opportunity available that I thought I'd be good at. I wanted to bring something unique from, from this district. I'm the only one actually who ran who was actually born and raised in this district. So I wanted to bring that to it and real experience. But I, I think after November of 2016, it changed my sort of drive around why to run, which was that I think everybody should be doing more right now. And if you're concerned about the Trump presidency like I am and others are, that you had to be directly on the front lines of fighting that, not just be sort of a, a passive observer. This is your first time running for a public office, right? Yeah, it is. Yep. That's so correct. what's it like? Is it what you've expected? It's, yeah, it's everything in one. I, I say that pretty earnestly. It's, it's, it, look, I would tell people to run for office because it's a really exciting opportunity to get to know your neighbors and your, uh, your neighborhoods and your community and your city or whatever, wherever you're running in a much deeper way. And if you're like me and I love New York City, it's a really almost your love letter to the place that you get to that you live in and that you're running to represent. Um, there are stressful moments. There are moments where you know candidates in a in a horse race are trying to uh, you know run past each other and do will do things that um, make you know are difficult. And it's also it's just a lot of time. You're you you really are carving out a year or two years or whatever it takes out of your life. You're putting a whole set of personal and professional and other things aside for this moment. And so it's, but I will tell you that when I got to the last day of my primary election and nine candidate race, and I sat down and I wrote a, I wrote a social media post where I just said, this was no matter what happens, it was a really truly the greatest year and a half of my life. I also received a letter, my mom actually, sorry, received a letter from a woman who voted for me on an absentee ballot saying how she met me and how wonderful I was and how she cast her vote for me. Those are really you know, unbelievable moments when people you've never met or people maybe you have met but for the first time are inspired to go out and, and vote for you. And win, lose, or draw, if you even just the idea that strangers are going out and casting a vote because you brought something to them that they, they find compelling is such a powerful thing. I, I will tell you, it's been one of the greatest experiences of my life on the whole. Of course, there's moments in it that are difficult, but when you, sit, when you can sit there the night before election day 
and be holding a letter like that and be sitting there feeling like I did everything I wanted to do in this election. How could you, I don't know how you could look back and be upset or disappointed with that. I think it's, so I, I think it's a truly wonderful experience. So how confident were you going in that you would win? <laughs> oh, not, not, not even close. Uh, the story I tell people I told on election night was, it was, I mean, look, in my race particularly, I was fortunate enough at the very end to get the endorsement of the outgoing council member. I got the New York Times endorsement. I had known that we had really talked to voters repeatedly. So I felt, I felt confident we had covered all of the sort of things that we'd want to do in the race. But it was 9 p.m. when the polls closed <clears throat> on election day where I was still wondering, you know, would I win if I did? What would it look like? How much? By how much? You know, what would the, what would the order be? I mean, you're, everything's going through your head, every particular scenario. It is, you will find out how paranoid you are as a human being if you ever run for office and it's on election day. True. During the day, it's great. You're talking to voters, you're meeting people, people are telling you they're voting for you. If they're, if they're not, they're probably not telling you that. So it feels great. Um, it's when the polls close and you realize it's everything you've done to this day is, is like decided upon. <laughs> When you sort of get when you sort of get nervous and scared, but I will tell you one really quick story. I was walking home. I got in the elevator. It was nine, just about nine o'clock. I was going home to like change into a new pair of clothes and then go watch the results. And I got off the elevator. I was wearing my Keith Powers for City Council sticker. And a woman and her husband are getting off of the uh, getting off the elevator in my building. And she sees my sticker and she turns to me and she says, "Oh yeah, I actually voted for that guy too." And I was like, <laughs> "I am that guy." And, and it was, we like all had a really good laugh. And I was like, I appreciate, thank you for that. And I went upstairs and I said, you know, this feels like this might actually happen. And that was, I, and I say this very confidently. I know people will say, oh, you're right, 9 p.m. on maybe 9.05 on the night of the election was when I thought I had a moment where I said, I think that my neighbors and people in my neighbors particularly are coming out to vote for me. And I think this will this is all net positive, but you, I just, I, I don't know how anybody could feel confident. It's just like such a paranoid moment. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the less fortunate things about the primary day was there was incredibly low turnout. Mm. New York State has some of the worst turnout in the country. Yeah. According to Time Out, only 14% of registered Democrats showed up to cast a ballot mm. in the 2017 primaries. Yeah. Yep. What are you hoping to do to increase voter turnout in the general election? Uh, well, I mean, A, we're just trying to talk to as many voters as we can. We're trying to remind people, period, that there's an election because, you know, in my area, some people are dissatisfied with the the mayor's office and others, and um, and and some rightfully so, maybe some not. But um, so, and, and, and there's not a, pres it's not a presidential year. So A, we've all, throughout this campaign been trying to talk to people that um, maybe are, not your routine voters, but are people that do are registered to vote and do and on some occasions. But um, it is discouraging to see uh, the low turnout. I will tell you that in my district, I think the turnout was about 19%. But in one particular area where I live, where we had really talked to a lot of voters, I think it was almost as high as 40%. So part of it's just part of it's just ability to talk to voters. Competitive elections allow you, you know, require you to go out and talk to voters repeatedly. And um, so, so uh, we did a lot of that, just kind of constantly talking to people. I think that the real solution in New York State is the laws that uh, by which by which voting occur. I mean, I think that the state particularly has really made it difficult to vote. It's like, it's it's on a Tuesday. 
where you can't you the limited ability to do an absentee ballot, no early voting, no mail, no no voting by mail, even the requirement, even the ability to change political parties within a few months before just to vote uh, in a primary coming up, you have to do it a year ahead of time. So I think that really a lot of it starts with the laws that we that we have in New York State that we have to really be more progressive in how we allow and register and you know how we how we make. And we make it easier for people to vote. I also think it's clear people, people, you know, doing it on one particular day, on a Tuesday in the low information races is not going to is not going to work if we want to increase turnout. So um, I think that it's I think that we should have either early voting or even people people have suggested things like we should move it to a Sunday or you know other days or, or some way to you know make it more accessible. So that'd be number one. Number two is you know. We, we do want to talk to as many voters as we possibly can, but obviously in a campaign where you're trying to win, you're really just trying to talk to voters that you think are going to vote and eventually they're going to vote for you. So the incentive structure is off um, in, that, in that way uh, for candidates. But I think that you, we want to see better, more registration, and I think particularly in New York City, New York State, make it easier for people to vote so that um, you know, when they realize there's an election going on, they can quickly get activated and go and go pick somebody to vote for. So you mentioned dissatisfaction with Mayor de Blasio, and there's one statement recently that really disturbed me from his administration. Mayor de Blasio expressed opposition to helping Puerto Ricans relocate to New York in the face of the devastating hurricanes. Do you agree with the mayor's statements? Yeah, I, I have long believed New York City's for everybody, and especially in these uh, emergency moments we should have. Uh, an open door policy to allow people to come here. So I, I would disagree with with that because you know a there's such a to me there's such a connection between Puerto Rico and New York City like a long standing relationship. Obviously, many folks that live here have family members down there, even members of the city council and other elected officials. And so um, I I would I would adopt. I mean I would I would support a policy where we're pretty. You know, opening arms pretty wide because in I, I remember Hurricane Sandy. I remember our worst moments, and everybody who stepped up and pitched in, including those who needed to go some stay with a friend. I I lost power in Hurricane Sandy. I stayed with a friend for a couple of days. I'm not saying they're the same thing, but they but it certainly we have to represent our best values in these moments. So I would I would like to see the city be. You know, I would not like to see the city oppose people coming here. Um, uh, and would like to see us open up the doors for them because for a lot of people, like in Puerto Rico particularly, they, they have a place to come and stay here in New York City. Going along with New York being a sanctuary city, obviously there's been a lot of pushback from the Trump administration about New York City protecting undocumented New Yorkers. What do you hope to do to keep protecting undocumented New Yorkers with specific policies in the face of the assaults by the Trump administration? It was one of the things we were fearful at the very beginning of the Trump administration was that people who are here working hard want the same opportunity that my, you know, my ancestors had when they came here <laughs> were afforded that opportunity. And in fact, I was just on the street yesterday and ran into somebody who lives in my district who was mentioning to me that there's a uh, a nurse at a nearby hospital who is um, who is uh, there there's there is likely to deport in two two weeks um, who's who's a nurse working at a city hospital is helping first responders is providing critical services to the city this seems like exactly like the person who'd want to stay in and keep here so a part of it's the the real fights in these moments when people are. You know, when the when the when the ice and others are actually taking real action is like symbolic protest, but also the real legal services, things like that. 
I, I have to say, I've, I've been fairly encouraged with New York City's response to the Trump administration on this issue. I think that we already had policies like IDNYC and others that were meant to make people feel like the city was, you know, open and accommodating to them. But the second part of it is um, uh, we, I think the city took efforts to expand protections for people. You couldn't go into city schools. We're talking about hospitals, other places that we were uh, preventing um, you know, enforcement actions against, and also, you know, getting rid of any records that would lead back to people, um, uh, you know, being able to determine that somebody was here, uh, was deemed illegally here. So I think the city's been pretty good at that. I just want to make sure we keep that up and that we have particular a support system for the individuals that are going through an actual action from the federal government. Uh, so it's both those sort of like little big policies to prevent it. And then to me, the the set of um, services for the people as they individually go through it. And there's organizations like Make the Road and others that have been absolutely great on this. And they've also been pursuing, you know, they've been pursuing other, you know, organizations that are supporting these practices to try to get um, a sort of a larger infrastructure around uh, supporting, you know, immigrants, supporting people who want to be here for the long term and be good, you know, good, good citizens or, or good, you know, participants in our in our city. So um, I think we had to keep up the fight. I, I think that I, I think New York City has been pretty good on this. And I think some of the internal squabbles over one policy or the other are just, you know, more internal stuff than larger stuff. But I would like to see us have more legal services for people. The city council speaker and the mayor had a little bit of a dispute over whether over like who to provide these particular legal services to. But the good thing here is that New York's just the, it, we, the starting point is that we should provide funding for legal services. And then the question is the details of it. So I think we're, we're doing better in, than most cities in terms of just the starting point of the conversation. Going along with the theme of New York and marginalized citizens, the NYPD is really notorious for its discriminatory practices. And in recent years, especially for its unwillingness to take responsibility for targeting black and brown bodies. What will you do to support the Black Lives Matter movement and enact police reform? So I think this and the same thing, I think the city, to some regards, has done, um, has, has started uh, the conversation on this. And I will just say that there has been a there has been a, a, a sort of, you know, the mayor and, the, and the, you know, some of the police and you know, police unions have had their say, series of clashes. And I, I, I sense that we are in a better place than we were a few years ago on that. And that, that everybody gets a little bit of um, uh, a little bit of uh, uh, applause for moving it finally, you know, moving the conversation forward. Now, I'll give you an example. The the uh, city finally resolved the contract with the the police benevolent association, the PBA. And um, in that conversation, not only did they give raises and more benefits and disability to the new officers that were coming on the job, because you do want to attract the best type of officers you can get, but they also had an agreement to do body cameras. So I think that an effort that had been resisted in the past, you kind of had both sides finally come together and realize there was, they both had a want, they both had something they wanted to get out of it, and they put it together. And I think that relationship would, we, it would behoove us all to have a relationship where you can, both sides can give something up. And, and end up in the end up in a better place. What I think that most folks in the last few years have felt like is that, and I think rightfully so, is that a number of these communities are over policed. That our policies are putting certain communities at risk, where communities in my district probably probably less so um, are 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 less policed, or the same the same crimes go get you know there's an arrest occurs in one neighborhood and doesn't occur in the other neighborhood. So 
I, I, not, I, I, I don't want to demonize anybody here. I, I would say that the city and the state have to be the ones that are, and, and like localities have to be passing laws um, to, you know, make sure those relate, make sure that the types of crimes that we are enforcing in this city, like the broken police, you know, the broken windows type of policing that has long for good reason come under scrutiny um, of putting certain communities in, in jeopardy and, and others not so much. So I think that type of stuff, I think that's the stuff that the city council particularly has taken interest in the last few years. And I, I, I want to say, I, I think there's a lot more to do on that front, but I, I will say that I think like changing the types of crimes that are that this enforcement's happening. I think a number of other things that the city has done in the last couple of years have started to address that issue. But it, it's going to continue to be making sure we're recruiting the best officers in this in this I, I, that we can, so that they uh, and p the folks who come directly from the communities that are I think are marginalized. Um, I think the, the the NYPD is increasingly getting more diverse. I think every graduation class we have is is um, the most diverse I think we've we've ever had. So I think that it will all help. Um, and then on the long the larger scale stuff like things like closing Rikers Island, I think sort of when we do make a arrest or we do put people into the criminal justice system, we want it to be at a safe place. We want there to the system to work on the judiciary to work on behalf of the people that are going to that system and. And we want to make sure that um, our criminal justice policies are aimed at um, both rehabilitating people, our uh, reentry is possible, and that we are not treating people like, uh, you know, let's put them away and never try to get them back into society. And reentry programs particularly, I think, I was just talking about this the other day, I think we'll need a particular focus in the next couple of years because we want to rehabilitate people and we want to, you know, we only want to put people into the system that deserve to be there or we think deserve to be there and then rehabilitate people. Um, and then be able to uh, re-entry them. If one of those things isn't working, we are failing. So a big problem with our criminal justice system is that a lot of homeless people, many of whom are mentally ill, are tossed into the criminal justice system rather than given the treatment they need. How do you plan to deal with that? Yeah, it's a good point. And and by the way, I just mentioned that the um, we should not be putting anybody into uh, the correction system or whatever you want, a criminal justice system that do not have without either the appropriate mental health services or something when they, you know, we, we are, we have, a, I think we have a long history of treating um, all people sort of alike and just saying, put them in a prison. So I think for the, I think for the homeless population, particularly in New York City, there is a, it's almost up to 65,000, I think, or something, something to that degree. And that, there, are, there are a lot of different populations that live within it. There's the working poor. There are people who've lost their housing. There are uh, obviously families and children. Our public school system is frighteningly one in 10 people now or one in the 10 students are homeless. And then you have a, a population, a lot of street homelessness, a lot of men that have substance abuse and mental health problems. We should not be arresting those people. We should be setting up services and places where we can, uh, 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 you know, give them housing, give them appropriate mental health services. And one example, I'll just give you an example. There is a, there is a uh, small shelter opening up right across the street from where I live. And that is normally a moment where most elected officials, I think most communities, you know, start to throw up their hands. I will say not only was I really encouraged by the neighborhood that I live in, that people were fairly accepting of the idea that we had to open up well, that was just, there was a small facility opening up right nearby, but it is for the most difficult, um, uh, I think, population, which actually do require all these services. So I think part of it is a role here is to not oppose and not to be too nimby or whatever you want to call it about providing services to people that we have, we are going to have to 
open up our doors and open up some facilities to treat people. And we want to make sure that we are having the right services inside them when we do. And that communities have to be sort of forward thinking about this stuff and not just go outside and protest it. So I, I kind of led, I wouldn't say led, but I, I was supportive of an effort to try to um, allow that facility to open. It, it, it will be. And um, the community, I think, mostly was, was supportive of it or not against it. That is the type of stuff we're going to have to replicate over and over in this city. And so that we don't know, we're not sending people to prisons. We are sending them to facilities where they can get the sort of appropriate support. And I hope other elected officials and communities will be open-minded when we have to do that as well. Another big crisis in the city regards the MTA. Anyone who depends on the subway to get to work knows that it's absolutely you know, kind of yeah. a disaster. Endless delays and breakdowns. Uh, well, the MTA obviously isn't currently under the city's jurisdiction. This is a crisis that needs to be addressed. Do you have any plans to help fix the MTA? Yeah, great question. And this is the question of the moment. Uh, look, I like congestion pricing as an option to resolve um, two issues. One is uh, the actual congestion in Midtown, and two, to provide a stream of funding for the MTA and expanding public transportation. I would make the argument that that billion dollars, I think that the current one of the plans raises, is still not enough to fund the MTA. I've heard estimates that we have to go as high as $12 billion to really fund or a fully funded uh, uh, MTA is is the cost that comes to have about 12, 12 billion, maybe maybe a shade up or down. But um, so it may not just be doing congestion pricing. It may actually be looking for other ways that we can raise revenue, whether it is on other type like one proposals to have Uber or other vehicles paying for uh, an MTA fee that the L taxis pay for. I have some folks who proposed a carbon tax for New York City that would help fund uh, public transportation. So it's clear to me that congestion pricing is is one option. It's being discussed. The governor's discussed it, is proposing it. Um, and then also we're going to potentially have to keep going and, and raising more money. Um, and I don't have to tell anybody who takes a train or a subway that it is a disaster. I have pretty good subways. I have pretty good, well-run subway lines, four, five, and six line in Manhattan in my district. But they come off, they come often, but they are packed every single time. So, um, and then you have outer boroughs who don't have trains, don't have buses. So, um, and the other thing I'd say is it is the state's jurisdiction. I think that's clear. They, they control the board. The MTA is a state-run entity. But I do believe the city has to be involved in the conversation. We also have board members on the MTA board. And I don't think, I don't want to see New York City left out of the conversation and just punt it to the state because um, we are the biggest user of it. And I think we, we, we subsidize other parts of New York State when it comes to public transportation. So I don't want New York City to say, not our problem. I want them to say, we are part of the solution and propose things like congestion pricing or other revenue raising mechanisms. So how do you feel about the power the state Senate has exercised over the city and a widespread feeling that it's failing to consistently address the problems that people in the city are actually facing. Yeah, I don't think anybody feels good about it who lives in New York City because you can identify any particular issue. And the MTA is a perfect one where, yes, it, the MTA technically covers you know, a number of different counties in New York State, but obviously New York City is really the epicenter of it. But you talk about housing policy, you talk about uh, you talk about uh, a number of transport, other transportation issues. I've had to go to Albany and advocate for issues like bus lane cameras or uh, you know other particular uh, you know pieces of of New York City law um, to get them implemented in 
in uh, to get to get basically New York City issues, we have to go often go to Albany for them. I, I don't feel good about it. I don't feel good about it for a number of reasons. A, New York City has a fairly robust government that can I think make good decisions about its own sort of future here. Number two is um, I, I, it's 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 used as leverage against us often in a number of issues. So you know the mayor often has to go up to Albany and ask for permission for mayoral control or MTA funding or school funding. A number of a number of issues. Um, it, it, part of it is just the politics of the moment where the mayor and the governor have a, a relationship that nobody would call uh, a good. It, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of an interesting relationship. But um, I had worked in, I worked, worked for State Senator Liz Kruger. Uh, we had run the State Senate Campaign Committee back then to try to get more Democrats elected. We had a brief moment where it worked, and then we, went, we had a number of Democrats who defected. So I, 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 you know, I don't like the idea that there are two groups of Democrats sitting in different places in the state legislature that we are holding up a number of progressive laws um, in New York State and in New York City because the state Senate is failing to act on them. And the idea that the state Senate has and the state legislature has so much authority over New York City. And when you, you have members literally who live close to Canada, never come to New York City, and they can have control over something like our transportation system or our housing laws. So I would not feel great about it. And I would particularly focus on um, uh, rep- you know, giving some authority back to New York City. Um, but also what's helpful for me, I think I have some Albany experience. So even in those areas where we have to go to Albany, I feel confident that I, like, you know, even more than some other members can go up, hopefully we'll be able to go up there and you know, do some advocacy work up there. But um, obviously New York City should be able to make its own, its own laws and its own policy. So the council itself isn't very representative of the city's diversity. The next session will have even less women than the current one, something I think we should all be concerned about. What are you hoping to do to increase diversity in city council to ensure that all New Yorkers are truly represented? And I will say, I think that the New York, I think the count, if the council is is fairly representative, ex- except that one that that one major glaring issue, which is that we do not have enough women in the city council, period. The number is astonishingly low. And we will have an opportunity uh, in four years also to almost, we're gonna almost, re, we're almost gonna elect an entirely new city council, save those who got elected this time. And I know there's an effort to try to recruit at 21 by 21, more women to run, to represent um, their districts. And it's two things. One is, you know, it's always making sure that where we have, we are um, being supportive and have a, have a good pipeline of good candidates to run. So, you know, we are, I think, fairly representative in other areas, you know, besides the gender issue. But that we, weren't, we, we should be concerned that that might go away, too, in, in four years. So I think it's, A, making sure we're recruiting candidates that represent New York City, represent their districts well, and um, that the city council is not predominantly one way or the other way, and that we have a, a fairly diverse thing. I Look, I will be looking to help out candidates in the next couple of years who are, you know, true representatives of their district, that we have real represent, real representation of the city as a whole in the city council, that we are um, identifying good progressive candidates, and those who have really who I think have real credentials in their community. Like I, I uh, one thing I, I you know, I'm really proud of is not just that I was I was successful in the primary, but just across the street from me and in a number of places, uh, like Carlina Rivera, who's a fantastic. Uh, will be a, and it will be a fantastic advocate for her community. She's a strong woman, a strong woman of color, progressive, really from her community. She fits a, she fits perfectly into the district that she's representing and will be great for it. 
But I think one of the biggest things that one of her advantages she had was she really had been doing stuff for long term in the community. People were familiar with her. So it wasn't just that um, she was a woman and a woman of color. That was super important, but that people really, I think, saw her as a progressive advocate in the community. So we want to identify people like that that will be uh, and, and start pushing people to run for office. I, I never I always pitch people that they if they're interested, they should think they should really take the steps to do it. Um, and, and then I think there's going to be a number of us who want to, you know, identify the candidates, help them raise money, show them what it's like to run for office, um, you, know, de- you know, demonstrate them the best practices of running campaigns. And so it's, it's going to be, I think, an effort for the next couple of years to really push people who are having that moment where they're considering it to actually get out the door, grab the clipboard and go run. And um, that means that we should not we should have open institutions. We should have our Democratic parties in New York City. Um, doing doing this, participating in this, and not trying to tell people not to run, but really tell people to go out and do it. And the city's a perfect place to do it because we have a campaign finance program where it's easier to raise money. Um, we have, you know, uh, I think a better electoral system here, period. It's easier to get on the ballot. So I will be looking to help recruit some good candidates in the next couple of years. I will be joining a lot of, I, I, I hope, a lot of my you know colleagues there to do the same. And we are going to make sure, I would hope, we will make sure in this process that the people we are looking to recruit really do represent entirely New York City. And I don't even pretend that we're, you know, there's not more ways to do that. I think in the future we'll have, we'll have to really, uh, you know, look at whether the council is truly, you know, representative. So what advice would you give to millennials hoping to run for office? Uh, the advice I wish I'd been given myself right when I started this race is that um, you you can't predict, first of all, when you start running for office or thinking about it, there's just a lot of unpredictable scenarios that are going to happen, like who's going to run, how many candidates, what, you know, issues are going to come up. Um, you know, the presidency of the United States of America was changed. Donald Trump, by the way, lives in my district, I should mention him, votes in my district too. Um, so I think that the really, the advice I've been given is like, there's a lot of unpredictable factors and a lot of information you don't have in the moment that you try to decide to run. So you have to feel confident that you really have a message that you think is unique and you can bring to the table that you want to run under, you know, all different scenarios and really run a campaign that is positive and driven on ideas and really driven around your kind of call to public service and nothing else because you can't really predict anything at the beginning of this race. And I had nine candidates run. When I opened my account up to run, I think there was two others. So you just have no sense of what where things will go. But you got to stay positive. You have to really want to run for office because there are long, there are early mornings and late nights. So you have to be really committed to it. And if you're positive and you have a smile on your face when you're out there, it will really it will really come across. People will really understand and see you're positive. But the other thing I'd say is um, I made the decision to run having been spending a lot of time in my community and in my district. Like you are gonna have to repeatedly tell people why you want to run for office and what you what drives you to public service. And you have to really feel confident about your answer and your story and why you're doing what you've decided to do. And it can't be just that you're ambitious and you want to be something else. You really have to show people that you haven't demonstrated. Uh, you want to have, uh, you know, you want you, you want to do public service and you have a demonstrated um, resume or experiences doing that. So I would say, like, you want to, like, you know, I think you want to be involved in your community and in organizations serving it, whether it's elected officials or community groups, you know, ahead of time to really be well equipped when you get onto the campaign trail to talk a lot about a lot of different issues and to tell people why 
you're standing where you're standing at any given moment. Don't run. I, my point is, everybody should think about running for office. I believe it firmly, but go into it with really a record of of things you've worked on and things you've done and a series of issues you want to work on. Some issues might be as much as criminal justice reform that we talked about or MTA or whatever it might be, but um, be eyes wide open about this. This is really tough and you want to be, you have to repeat yourself over and over and over. So come at this really with uh, a record and a resume and a real record of in the community. Um, don't, you know, don't just do it because you feel like it's a, it's, it's a thing that can be done at that very particular moment. That being said, once you decide to run, don't let people slow you down. People will try to talk you out of it. People will try to, you know, help other people, help other people out. Set your game plan, get your people you trust, and start raising the money and start running. And you'll only have a great year of your life. You will never, never, I don't think you'll ever look back on it and truly feel like this was a bad thing. You'll, I think you'll really be excited about what, um, what, what, what doors open for you and what sort of how positive an experience it is. Obviously, Election Day is close, but if folks are interested in learning more about your campaign or getting involved, what can they do? They should go to my website. It's keithpowers.nyc. You can volunteer right on there. And you can do anything like coming out and handing out flyers with me or talking to voters on door knocking, but also calling from home, calling, you know, even, by the way, even if it's like social media or tweeting and saying, I'm voting for Keith or I'm supporting Keith, that's great too. This is, there's a lot of different ways that people get information about um, election day is coming up and who candidates are out there. So there's no perfect way, but go to my website, KeithPowersNYC, sign up to volunteer, send us a note. We'd love, we can get you involved even that day. And it's two weeks left from today. So we're, uh, we're really excited about it and we'd love to have more people helping out. All right, great. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. I just want to say congratulations to you. This is a fantastic uh, podcast and program you're putting together. And obviously getting millennials involved in politics is a very important thing. I can tell you how, how, how uh, few young people's doors were knocking on when we're going to talk to likely voters. It's discouraging, but having outlets for people is really important. So thank you for putting this together. Yeah, absolutely. Again, this is Keith Powers, Democratic candidate for New York City District 4, and I'm Jordan Valerie, Editor-in-Chief of Millennial Politics. Thank you for listening.